Benvenidos and welcome to the Platform Latino podcast where we profile, highlight, and bring to the airwaves the successes of our community and those helping us to get us there. I'm your host, Osvaldo Valdez, and I'd like to thank you for joining us and enjoy the show. So to, today on the podcast, we have Oscar Benitez, who's um, a friend that I met a few years ago, actually in India, at a friend, a, a mutual friend's wedding. And I invited him here on the podcast to talk a little bit about his story and then um, what he's doing today and um, kind of just hearing how he got there and his upbringing. So welcome, Oscar. Thanks for having me. Really excited to join. Thank you. Thank you. So, so let's start off and getting your like your origin story. Like, where were you born? Um, your childhood. Where were you, where were you raised? Yeah, happy to do that. You know, and it's different because like you know when you hang out with someone at a wedding, you don't get to you don't even get to origin stories, right? You just get to hanging out and yeah. uh, making it happen. So um, I'm actually glad we get a chance to know one another like this. Uh, I, I was born and raised in LA, uh, about. 10 minutes from Dodger Stadium in a neighborhood known as Silver, Silver Lake or Echo Park. Um, I like to say I grew up there before it was cool. Uh, <laughs> you know, now that's been very gentrified. It's kind of the, the hot place to go. Everyone's going to all these different restaurants. Um, but I grew up in a place where you weren't allowed to go play outside. Uh, in fact, all the families kind of stuck it out, you know, for 20 plus years, um, given a lot of the gang activity that was going on. And really in the late, late 2000, uh, early 2000s actually is when everything started changing. Uh, but that was at a time when I was already in college. Okay. So it was a, it was a very awesome neighborhood to grow up in, but it was also a neighborhood that you weren't allowed to fully enjoy just kind of given the realities of it. Mm. And so then, wow. So were you born there in, in LA or? Yep. Okay. Yeah. My, uh, <clears throat> my mom came from El Salvador in the early eighties. Okay. Uh, so as is the case with thousands of Salvadorans, right? They all left the country while it was in the midst of a civil war. Mm-hmm. Um, she crossed the border and then really started, restarted her new life in LA, uh, cleaning homes and taking care of kids of uh, families out in the West side. Oh, wow. Okay. So, so you had that foundation like that she, you know, risked her life, like a lot of immigrant stories yep. for, for better. Have you gone back to El Salvador or? Yeah, we used to go. We used to go maybe like once or two times a year. Okay. Uh, but starting in around 2001, 2002, mm-hmm. the situation there, the security situation got there, you know, was, was not good. Mm-hmm. And in fact, anyone that came from the United States was really at risk of being kidnapped or extorted. And although we're, we don't come from a family with money, mm-hmm. uh, just the perception of someone coming from the United States is enough, right? To send out all the, all the warning flags where the people where you go visit ultimately could, could be held up. Um, they could be uh, essentially held for ransom with the expectation that family in, in the United States would make some sort of payment, right? To release folks. It's not so, you, it's both you and your family that you would go visit. That's right. That's right. It has nothing to do with me. In fact, it's just the fact it's, it's just that I am someone in the United States and that in itself is a privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, And as a result of that, they know that you have means uh, that are more than folks back in El Salvador. So 
that creates issues. So frankly, I actually haven't been back uh, in over almost 15 years now. Oh, wow. So hopefully uh, that's something that we try and fix in the near future. <laughs> yeah, it takes, it takes a lot of help from both the government and, you know, just life in general to, to fix that kind of situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. It, 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 it just kind of reminded me, it's not as dangerous, but when I went to Cuba, you know, they hear you're an American and they're like, oh, yeah, you know, can you give me a bigger tip and this and that? But, <laughs> you know, they always expect like any American that comes from out of, you know, they, they, they come from wealth or they have some money that, that they can stow away. So, and it's interesting because in Cuba, like it's also institutionalized. You have a different currency, yeah. right, compared to everyone else that's there locally. So even there, right, like you're... <laughs> You're already at a disadvantage to begin with, let alone, you know, all the other social and cultural norms that come with it. Yeah, I remember the taxi driver. He's like, oh, Jay-Z, he's an American. He visited here. He gave like a $100 <laughs> tip. And I'm like, well, I'm not Jay-Z, so. <laughs> well, That's awesome. But it's, um, it's always different when you, when you travel either back to your, your home country, your parents' country, and, and just seeing the differences. Even people that were born in those countries, they, they're even treated different once they become Americanized or States. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so you, you grew up in, in LA and you said it was very dangerous. You couldn't really go out and play. Like, how was that? Did that help in your schooling? Like, did, did it make you more focused? Did you have a good support network, friends? Yeah, it's actually <clears throat> it's interesting you mentioned that. I was actually recently talking to someone about that. So I grew up right in downtown LA, but I always went to school out in the West Side which were the, the wider, wealthier communities of LA. Mm -hmm. What that meant was that my commute to school starting in third grade was always at least an hour one way. Mm -hmm. So uh, in high school, I ended up going to Santa Monica High School. It was almost a two hour bus ride oh. from downtown LA to, uh, to the beaches, really. Is that because uh, your mom worked out there that you, you went to school issue? Partially, yeah. So first, she she worked out in the west side but two those are the best public schools you can go to mm. you know you, you don't really become aware of this until much later in life but my local homeschool was a school of almost five thousand kids you had a lot of police activity uh just basic ap courses were incredibly scarce and in fact the LA Times ran stories stating that the AP Chem course was actually being run out of a teacher's kitchen because students did not have the appropriate equipment, right, to just conduct basic experiments. So my mom, as, as is the case with all immigrants, right, hustlers in every way in life, mm -hmm. identified this very early on, which is why starting in third grade, I essentially took public transit all the way out to the west side just to get the best public education possible. The only reason being was that that was our only way out, right? When you grow up, when you grow up in the hood and it's, and it's not good, the only, the only way out, sadly, was through education. And, and that was something that was instilled very early on in third grade and really carried out throughout the rest of my education. Did you ever have problems with like the people in your neighborhood seeing you like, hey, why don't you go to our school or why are you taking the bus, you know, two hours before most third graders go? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't say it was an issue because I was really shielded from that. Okay. Um, it, it was, I would run into my neighbors on the weekends when we'd go out and do laundry. 
when I'd go buy, go out and, and buy milk with my mom. In fact, I wasn't even allowed to leave the house by myself until I was about 14. Mm. So in many ways, I lived a, a, dual, a dual reality where I, I slept and did laundry and did kind of your basic needs in, on, one side of, on one side of town, which was historically underpoverished, big immigrant community, particularly from Central America, Asia, um, and Mexico. That's one part of the week, right? Mm-hmm. And the remainder of the week, I was out in, in the west side of LA, where the majority of my friends were white and Jewish. Um, I had to learn really how to negotiate both those spaces in third grade, which was great life skills, right? Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, I wasn't afforded an opportunity to actually bond with people with my similar upbringing because of the fear of gang initiation because of the fear of violence and just general crime, Mm -hmm. which for us is actually really interesting because my Latino experience therefore was always enjoyed only through my family and our family's friends and at family parties, Mm -hmm. but not in, in a school setting. So it does a lot of weird stuff, you know, for identity too, right? As you can imagine. No, and I, and I can relate with you too. Like my parents were able to live like in a middle-class neighborhood, but it was right next to like adjacent to like a, a more wealthy affluent area. And that's where I went to school. So I, I grew up with a lot of, um, you know, white Jewish, you know, established people that, you know, maybe generational wealth a little bit. Yep. You know, I had a whole nother experience, you know, bar mitzvahs, Jewish weddings and everything. <laughs> The Latino part, like I had a very small family, so that I sometimes when I'm put in a like a ultra majority Latino area or like atmosphere, it's not. It, I feel relate relatable, but sometimes it's like okay, I I'm not this deep into it. <laughs> mm. There's there certain times where that you know I'm identified as a gringo or like oh you're, you know there's all those things that they they classify you as, but um you know, to the core and to everybody else, we are Latino, you know, we do hear that. So it it is always an identity crisis. It it is. And and it, and it brings to question, right? Like what is, what is that identity story? Mm -hmm. Because for the longest time it was talked about assimilation, meaning you leave yourself at home and you leave your culture and your language at home. And then you try and play in with the rest of white America. And Children, right? Again, third grader, I was able to identify that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, 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 it was actually very, very destructive for me. Uh, I remember in sixth and seventh grade, actively telling my white friends that I didn't speak Spanish so that I could fit in. Oh, wow. Um, I was always the kid where it was always one of, I don't know, four or five people of color in a classroom of about 40. And because I'm, I'm not of a lighter skin tone, but I would say you know, I'm lighter brown, mm-hmm. um, I knew I wasn't just black. I knew I wasn't indigenous, right? Um, the second thing I knew is that because I was an only child of a single parent, I also had the ability to create my own narrative in the absence of a father, right? So not only did I tell my classmates that I didn't speak Spanish, even though, even though I, I, I could write it, speak it, right, understand it, 
But I also told my classmates that I made up my father's identity to my benefit. I would tell them <laughs> that, yeah, my mom's from El Salvador, but my dad's a Spaniard. He's a white Spaniard. I remember saying that explicitly. Oh, wow. So that there was an element of whiteness that we can connect with. And I wasn't that different than the rest of my white friends. So you can imagine all of that internalized racism mm -hmm. really leading to some form of rejection. And, uh, and that was just from nine to five. And when you're, when you're back on the bus with everyone else in the neighborhood, right? You're back to speaking in Spanish, talking to the bus driver, hanging out with all the you know, cleaning ladies and all the other guys that played soccer and football, like if nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So it, it's just, <clears throat> assimilation is a very tricky process in the United States just to fit in. That was a coping mechanism, it was a survival. You do it to survive. But at the end of the day, right? Like you have to check yourself. And when was that moment, like, because you, you clearly identify as Latino and you, you speak Spanish through your professions and now and your, your jobs. Like, when, what, do you remember the time when you're like, wait, I don't need to pull up this false narrative yeah. <laughs> and say, you know, a, Span a white Spaniard, you know, and this and that just to identify or fit in. Do you remember that moment or like that, that time? Yeah, for sure. Um... It, and it speaks to actually diversity among teachers. Um, okay. I, right around ninth, 10th grade, um, as I entered high school, I came across two teachers that were, that were Latino. And it was the very first time I remember seeing a, a Latino person that was educated, respected, um, and, and frankly, someone that you can look at and say, wow, that person's proud. And, and that, that starts clicking. So that was like mm. kind of the first thing. The second thing was I started picking up uh, Spanish literature, uh, okay. books written in Latin America and throughout the 1900s, uh, some late 1800s actually, I was another teacher. And I started understanding that your culture is no longer one that was portrayed in, in the news media. Growing up, I was ashamed that my mom was a housekeeper and my dad, my dad, my uncle, you know, was a gardener and the rest of my family members, right, were low wage service workers. And as I got to learning more about our culture, more about the 20 plus Latin American countries uh, and, and the history of it. I started recognizing it's not that different than what you're taught in school. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that, that played a very big role actually in fully embracing myself. And in fact, it came, there was a, it was a very clear shift. I remember being on the bus where I was no longer being ashamed of being on the bus with my white friends from school uh, and seeing everyone else in my neighborhood on that long bus ride. But then I was like, you know what? Like the few, the proud, the few Latinos that make it out of the neighborhood, right? And are on this bus. Uh, and it became a point of pride where he's like, you know what? We can do this. This is pretty cool, actually. And, and, and then the rest just kind of starts unfolding itself. But you needed to go through that introspective process. You needed to see those mentors and those teachers that look like you. And then you needed to embrace that material that was outside of what you just saw out in the streets 
to fully recognize this is me and I'm proud to do, to be part of that. Wow. Yeah. I never saw the importance of like just seeing that. Well, I knew it, yeah. but the first time hearing that it, it actually matters seeing people in the professions that you, you value look like you, you know, that, that was, this is one of the reasons why I started this podcast because mm-hmm. I feel like I've been connected to high achieving and, you know, power, not powerful, but high potential and successful Latinos and Latinas. And, you know, maybe some people in the neighborhood are, you know, East LA or, you know, more, um, poverty stricken neighborhoods if they see people out in the community or hear the podcast they hear about oscar you know they, they say okay well there's somebody out there and he's proud and it, that that's what it, it kind of gave me the warm fuzzy feeling you know that that <laughs> yeah it is so so once you started seeing these latinos and becoming in, in school and high school um that led you to go to college which you went to upenn correct that's right yeah so ivy league were you always like on that track like i want to be ivy league or it was an accident, really. Uh, <laughs> um, that, you know, I mentioned, you know, back even second, third grade, right? The goal was education because that was the only, the only way out, so to speak. Um, and not only is that a problem, right? Out. Like, why do you have to leave your neighborhood? Um, we can talk about that in a bit. But, um, you know, I knew I had to go to college. And... As, I mean, as you remember, right, junior year, senior year, it's high stress situation, SAT scores aren't strong, you're trying to get those up, you got all these essays going. And I sent out something like 20, 20, some 20 applications. And my goal, to be honest, is just go to a UC school, you know, UCLA, UC Berkeley, UC San Diego, because um, I wanted to stay in California. Uh, and very quickly, I recognized that all these acceptance letters started coming in. And I also started learning that private schools have larger endowments, right? And that they can provide scholarships that fully offset the, the full cost of, of tuition, even though tuition to a private school is almost two, three times the amount as it is for a public school. So, so for me, uh, it was just part of the process. Uh, had great financial aid package from Penn. Uh, and, and I also received tons of scholarships that I applied for while in college to supplement anything else that the university wouldn't be able to offer. You, you got to say you are one of the lucky ones because some people yeah. <laughs> get part, partial scholarship, but not, you know, and some people just pay all out of pocket. Yeah, we're really lucky. I mean, to go through college debt free mm-hmm. and it, it's something that I don't take lightly because you know, debt is a multi-generational burden. And we were already working from a deficit, right? My mom's was categorized as someone living under the poverty line, um, limited network, right? So you don't know what this process looks like. You kind of have to figure that out on your own and talk to people and establish your own mentorship networks. Um, but going to college, to be honest with you, was that point where you have to fully embrace your independent journey for what it is, right? You're no longer dependent on a parent that worked mm-hmm. day and night just so you had an, educa- an opportunity to learn. Here, you actually have to put that into, into practice. And although I always wanted to be in California, leaving the state truly cut the cord and you have to figure, figure it out, right? And you're <laughs> person on your own course. And if you mess it up, that's on you. It's not on, that's not on the neighborhood. It's not on media perception. It's not about not seeing people look like you, even though that was still the case. 
mm-hmm. you're you actually now have to put up or shut up to be honest with you and that's how i respond as a as an individual right there's a challenge and you got to go out and seize it so so college four years in in philadelphia from 2005-2009 was was crazy uh it was super cold but at <laughs> the end of the day uh was one of the best decisions I ever made, which is leaving your comfort zone and throwing mm-hmm. yourself out in a place where you knew you were going to get challenged and you knew you're going to be the only one. Cause again, right. I mean, as you, you, you remember this in college, like mm-hmm. you, go, you go into these really small classrooms or huge lecture halls and you're the only dude, yeah. you know, that looks like you and you're like, all right, here we go again. You know, those same feelings of anxiety from fourth, fifth grade start kicking in. And that first year is all about belonging. The good news is, right, that you don't, you don't longer shed everything that comes with you in the way I did, right, in, in middle school. But I just present myself as, as the person I was. And, and it worked out. Yeah, because you're there. Everybody's kind of like on an equal playing field. So you're like, you all got into the school. So now you just, it's your personality that really takes you and establishing those little, those, those groups and just kind of, Stepping up to the plate, I guess, yeah. if you want to and um, taking your shot. So, and then when at U at U Penn, was there a, a did you immediately bond with the Latino students? Did you kind of do your make your own networks? Were you more of like the social butterfly and make friends with everybody? Like, how does it? Because it's a smaller. I went to a big public school out out of state, so but it's still like thirty thousand people. There is a, a decent Latino population, not, but it was um. Everybody, a lot. It was a public school in Illinois, so they a lot of it was a feeder school, mm-hmm. but it was it was a good one. But it wasn't those small niche classrooms. You know, you were in lecture halls for eight hundred students, mm-hmm. and it was crazy. And you walk in there, and you're like lost. But how how would you describe your first few weeks? Did you? Yeah. Um, too much partying. That those first <laughs> uh, two months. <laughs> uh, but then you course correct. You know, I'd say that there were a couple of points that were eye-opening. Mm-hmm. The first one was leaving LA and the and the Latino experience there. It's a it's a predominantly Mexican and Central American experience, even though LA, LA is a huge global city and everyone from the world lives there. My reality mm-hmm. was, if you're Latino, you you were brown, and you're probably from Mexico or Central America. I showed up on the East Coast. And I ran into a couple of um, Puerto Rican kids and I didn't understand a single thing they, they were saying in Spanish. And, and, I, and I don't mean that as, as an offense. It was just a different accent at a different speed. Um, I met a couple of uh, Dominican kids and they were black, right? And that was different for me. I, mm-hmm. The concept of a black Latino was not part of my reality. Even though, even though my aunt is essentially... If you look at her, you would assume she's black, mm-hmm. but it never clicked. It never connected the dots mm-hmm. to me. You know, your aunt is just your aunt. It's part of family. You don't think about a person like that critically. Um, when you're at, when, when you, when you're out in the streets and you're like, oh, okay, cool. That person's speaking Spanish. And I thought that person was black. Your minds are starts doing crazy things. Um, so first of all, it was, it was the, the, the racial component of being Latino that was, was radically, diversified, which was awesome, but I'd never seen mm-hmm. that before. And the second one was 
at my school, you had a lot of Latin American students from wealthy families that are international coming in. And those students were, you always thought were just white. And then you turn around and he's, you know, using all these slang terms in Spanish. And you're like, whoa, 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 hold on. I thought you were some white Jewish dude. Um, <laughs> he's like, I am, but I'm from Mexico. I'm like, wait, what? Um, <laughs> you know, all of, all of these worlds start colliding. So the, the Latino experience is eye-opening from a racial perspective, um, but also uh, from a socioeconomic perspective, because it was also the first time I met very wealthy uh, Latin Americans. Did you ever feel like they, they looked at you different, like once they found more about you and that you didn't come from, you know, necessarily the same wealth they did? Um, you implicitly felt that. You okay. implicitly felt that. Um, and, and the way you feel it is, is through the social scenes, right? Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of the, the wealthier uh, Latin American kids, you know, were already in fraternities and sororities. So there's already some form of exclusivity where you've gone through a filter and you're part of these huge private homes on campus mansions, right? Um, that's number one. Uh, number two is also in the things that you do outside of class, right? When you have, when you have means to go out and party and have really nice dinners and, and buy all these things, uh, you flex that right in college because you can. Uh, if you're there on financial aid and you're trying to figure out, all right, like I got to make sure I don't fail out of this first semester here, right? You're you're buckling down, and a, a lot of a lot of us U.S. Latinos are actually put in that situation. Where you're like, wait a minute, hold on. How is it a coincidence that the the widest <laughs> international <laughs> Latin American kids have this, have this own experience. And then us, the darkest, some, mm -hmm. of, the, some of the, you know, Latinos didn't even speak Spanish that, that well, right? So there's also linguistic components who would have a different experience. And the reality was that after about a couple of months, you figure out your own friends groups and you plug in. And, and for me, I actually, I just formally got involved actually through, through, the, through the student groups. And that was actually a very big part of my, my experience there. Yeah, I had kind of like a reverse experience. So I came from like a middle class and then um, South Florida is very, you know, South American, Colombian, Venezuelan, especially the area I grew up. And then even in Puerto Rican, I had that component, which Miami is very Cuban. And then when I went to the Midwest, it was like all Mexican. So <laughs> <laughs> I, like I, I don't speak Spanish fluently, but just hearing their, their Spanish, I was like, whoa, this is just like the movies at first. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> The first Latino I met, he had like the like piercings all over and tattoos, bald shaved head. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, wow, this is like the ones in the movies. And I, <laughs> Welcome to my neighborhood. A, <laughs> yeah, it was a wrong um, assessment, but it was uh, it was a, a definitely eye opening. But then I got the not the reverse. Like they they looked at me like, oh, you're one of those Latinos. You're the rich Latinos, and mm -hmm. you know they call me. Um, in the Latino Latino studies, they, you know, Cubans are seen as elite because they were allowed to stay at that time, like when they they made it to the U.S. But so there there was a little bit of that animosity, like, oh, okay, you're one of you know your your family can stay if they they make it here. 
but but then once you you break through those barriers, right. they see okay, you're just like us. You he's know, down. you have your. Own he's down. Struggles. He's like he's he's ready to make it happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he made it here. He had his own struggles, but it's all it's all good. And then um, with the language thing, I remember I went to when I went to Cuba. My my Mexican friend flew in from Chicago, and he speaks Spanish fluently. But as soon as he landed in Cuba, I was the one translating for him. And like, <laughs> <laughs> he was like, "What the hell are they saying?" <laughs> yeah, it's like all of a sudden you have like five, seven letters of the alphabet completely disappear, and I'm like, "How is that possible?" Right? And then and then there's a speed that comes to that, and you're like, "Wait, what?" Yeah. <laughs> he was so lost and he got hustled so badly it was pretty bad but <laughs> hey man you pay the price for the experience so as long as you thought it was worth it might as well yeah it. <laughs> it was a good time but um so you found these these groups you said were they like latino groups they they were um I, I was formally um involved in one of the big umbrella groups which actually had uh political representation within the student body uh it was called Latino Coalition, and it represented the 22 student groups on, on campus. Wow. And, and this is where my personal interests, which were always um, community-based, trying to find how you navigate the political system to advocate for, your, for, for those you know, that are in your situation. And I found myself really advocating on behalf of student groups. Uh, I, I ran for an elected position uh, my, my second year in college, um, and I was elected as chair of, of the coalition. And it was through that that I formally got to, to know all of the other student leaders and all of the other uh, Latino students that, you know, cared about these issues. Um, you know, you can, Penn, you got 10,000 kids there, but undergrad, you have uh, I, I would say a couple hundred Latinos and that's it a year, maybe somewhere from two to 400 about more or less. So it's not that big community, but then you're like, wait, why you guys got 22 groups? Right. Mm -hmm. And then you start, oh, okay, great. There's the Latin American student association and there's the Puerto Rican undergraduate student association and there's the Cuban American. It's all super splintered, which is great. Mm -hmm. Right. Cause everyone, they're all different countries. Uh, Latino is not a monolithic term. Um, Hispanic, right? As was the case with the U.S. Census in the 80s, was just a, a check-the-box thing for demographic purposes. But students naturally organize themselves around their own culture and their nationalities. So the the fragmented nature of the groups was actually super helpful for me because I got the chance to meet all the groups and all the students that were involved. And that is how I actually got to meet all the international students and all of the kids from Chicago and Miami and LA and the Southwest and from the Bronx. Uh, and, and frankly was awesome because on the one hand, you're doing all these formal things in meetings and you're planning events and you're thinking about what are effective strategies to increase the admission rate for uh, Latinos and students of color. And then at nighttime, you're just throwing these huge parties, right? with all the Colombian kids and the Brazilian kids and all the kids from LA and Chicago. So you talk about breaking barriers. Yeah, we were able to make, break barriers on common goals of representation and success and by party. So like, you know, you're, 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 you're 18, 19 you know, years old and you're starting to figure these things out and you're like, wait a minute, this is how things actually work in the world. 
So mm. that was that was a great way to get involved. And and frankly, ultimately led to me writing my thesis actually in college on Latin on the uh, Latino immigrant story of Philadelphia. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it was it was a full, fully packaged, well-rounded experience. Wow. Yeah. It seems like in that not only you benefited, but you were able to get back and just expand that network and kind of make it a web to to bring other people together. I'm sure. Yeah. Just those parties and throwing them, you know, people from the Brazilian group met the Cubans and yep. Puerto Ricans, Mexicans, and from the different coasts. And probably, did you ever invite like outside orgs into these? Oh, all the time, all the time. Yeah. Like, um, I I remember there was there was an event that that they were doing every year when I first started. It wasn't new. Uh, they it had been happening, but we thought it was awesome. Um, it was event. The event was called Soul Soul Soul. Okay. But it was a collaboration with the uh, Korean student organization, one of the one of the uh, African American groups, and one of the, the Latino groups. Soul as in the city, Soul okay. as in S O U L, and then Soul as in the sun. Right. So you awesome. got all these smart kids starting to come up with all these innovative ways of of, of crossing racial and international barriers. You know that was awesome. Um, that was that was the cool thing for me, and a lot of the 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 Dominican and Puerto Rican kids that I met from New York, they'd been doing this since like middle school and high school because they identified as Afro-Latino and they grew up in, in a city that viewed them as black, right? And if, if some of them came from private schools, it was the black kids and the Latino kids that had kind of to bond to form their group of like six, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> to figure things out. Uh, coming from an LA, from LA, that wasn't really the case. It was kind of this big mosaic of things publicly, but personally, you had to like navigate these places because it was segregated. Uh, mm -hmm. Going to college, it wasn't. Everything overlaps. Yeah, definitely. So then, um, from one thing, I, I I wrote one of some some questions I I wrote is um, how does the experience of going to an Ivy League and being Latino translate after college because I, I was working with a nonprofit here in the city and the guy he went to Columbia undergrad Harvard Business School and he was a Puerto Rican guy and this is like in the 70s so if if it's only 100 students in, in the 2000s imagine how many how few were back then oh, yeah and just like going through like socials and, and little like get-togethers he knows people from back then that other Latinos other Puerto Ricans and that that went to HBS with him and this is like you know spanning 40 50 years do you do they instill that like to keep the bond together or is that more just on a case-by-case -case situation uh I think as is as is probably the case with everyone right you kind of go back to those survival instincts of when you were a kid so as an adult that's called networking <laughs> you know, and, and, and networking, you know, leads to jobs, it leads to collaboration, it leads to thought partnership. And, and what I'll say is that the, the network within a school is small. Um, and, and to me, I don't think there's really a distinction between, you know, an Ivy League network and a non-Ivy League network, because they're just, there just aren't enough people to call it a huge network. Right. Um, so to me, there's no difference 
if if someone says, "Hey, my name is so and so, really interested to talk about this," like you you want to get on a call? That's great. Like there was no mention of school, right? Mm-hmm. It's just someone introduced themselves. They explain why they're interested in in talking and doing some work, and then I'm like, "Yeah, I'm down. Let's do it. Let's talk." So I, I'm not I'm not I'm not convinced that the Ivy League label is something that um, segregates networking groups, especially mm-hmm. if you are in control of that dialogue. I think that plays a bigger factor when you are applying for jobs, especially out of college, when mm-hmm. recruiters just look at your resume or recruiters already know that they always pick 20 kids from the same school. You know, so these are like systemic uh, norms that you kind of have to deal with and that I benefited from. Like from Penn, I went straight to New York and working on Wall Street at J.P. Morgan. I was able to do that because there were already established programs that were funded by Wall Street firms looking to recruit kids from Ivy League schools, right? So I benefit from that. So there's a huge, huge win there. Not gonna, not gonna deny that, but among alumni themselves, no. I mean, people are smart. People got interesting things. Let's talk about it. I mean, I live in San Francisco now. You see that all the time. I'm waiting for a drink at a bar, and someone's like, "Hey, I've been thinking about this app." Da, 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 da. And I'm like, um, "I don't code. I really can't help you with that." And the guy immediately says, "Great. Well, as a consumer, would you what would you think about this?" Mm-hmm. Right, and then you start talking. Uh, and then you find out that the guy is, you know, from New Mexico and that he's half Latino. And then all of a sudden you start, you know, things lead to one another. So I'm not, I'm not big on the, the, the branding thing. Um, okay. I think it matters when you're looking for work, but at the end of the day, right. Smart people, driven people, fun people, humble people find ways to connect outside of where they went to school. That's good to know because I think like they have that, that stereotype I believe people stick together and they you know they don't but like I think if you like in any networking yeah if you just show like okay we have some common threads Mm -hmm. we can can relate to each other so you you said you worked at JP Morgan and then from from college is that your first job and then yeah yeah that was my first job out of college Um, like sophomore year I knew I wanted to go work on Wall Street Um, and and this was like very deliberate I, I wanted to improve my quantitative skills. I wanted to understand how the economy worked because if I was very much interested in trying to address a number of social problems that plagued the neighborhood I came from, you need to understand how the economy functioned. That's, that was my perspective. Um, I'd worked in government. I'd worked with nonprofits. I, in fact, I wanted to be a lawyer and go to law school and work on civil rights issues. But at the end of the day, I recognized that you need to understand the system in order to allow the system to work for you. So to start, I wanted to understand the economy. Um, I went into investment banking, like straight into the deep end. Like says what, the kid who said, I never want to take a math class ever, right? Went straight to working in spreadsheets um, for two reasons. One, like I mentioned, was to build skills, but two, to save money. You know, like I, even to this day, I'm 31 and I'm still paying my mom's bills, paying her rent and all these other things. So um, it was no longer education was longer just a ticket quote unquote out, but then it was also a ticket to start 
paying, right, your due, right, mm-hmm. um, and take care of your family. So, so for me, that was just a nat- very natural pathway. Um, I worked at J.P. Morgan in their investment banking group for two years, uh, and then I worked in private equity for four afterwards. Same goal, though. Build skills, mm-hmm. extend a network, and establish some form of credibility. Understand how money works, and also get a good understanding of how to invest in other companies, uh, while at the same time making a good wage. Um, and you know, those six years were rough in terms of work hours, working seven days a week. Um, killed a lot of my relationships, either with girlfriends or or friends, but was mm-hmm. a necessary step in the process, right, of trying to add a different dimension to my education. My undergrad degree was in urban studies, okay. uh, looking at economic and community development, um, heavy focus on immigration. Uh, but I'm like, what do you do with that? How do you put that to work? And I knew that going and working in finance was not going to give me an immediate answer, but it was going to give me the, the background. To, to be dangerous, <laughs> you know, at, yeah, no, at, some, at some point in the future. So that's really how, how I thought about making that jump. Into yeah, because there's a lot of political activists and people like trying to help their, their urban populations and their communities, but they don't understand the financial and economic side. They might have studied economics in school, but right. a lot more moving, moving pieces that they, I think that's, that's admirable that you went into the deep end because that's, of course, in New York, the, where... <laughs> the capital um this of the, you know the money the financial capital of the world you really got that that insight and i'm almost positive it it's helped you you know when you you are communicating and doing the work you are doing now yeah it, it, big time and everyone plays a role right not everyone mm-hmm. can be the uh the the community organizer not everyone can be um the person at you know, community meetings and being the loudest person there. Um, mm-hmm. And also not everyone can be the, the academic scholar, right? That is putting out the research stating, this is what racial inequalities look like in the education system. Everyone plays a role. And for me, I, I had determined at like, I don't know, in 19, 20 years of age that like, my role is trying to understand the economic side of things, number one. And then number two, to try and understand how do you work within the system to reallocate those resources um, that every resident of this country is entitled to. Um, sadly, it just doesn't always trickle down that way. Yeah, but that, but you know the backgrounds to their side, so it's easier to communicate. And that's right. Because sometimes they, you know, they demonize corporations and all that stuff. But hey, with that money, and if you know how to talk to them and, you know, access that, those funds and that financial capital, you can really be powerful and, and really move mountains. Yep. So it's, a, it's a valuable takeaway and, and I guess trait to, to learn. And then you said, so from JP Morgan, you worked at Palladium, right? Yeah. Uh, in private equity in New York. So is that the only Latino PE firm or? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, so Palladium is the largest Latino-owned private equity firm, investment firm. Um, when you bring in venture capital and all the other uh, different type of strategies, 
but it's not the only one. Okay. Um, there are there, there are a handful of, of other firms, uh, and that was interesting walking in there because <laughs> uh, we talked about earlier in the hour about the the importance of seeing other people that look like you, right? With teachers and the, and what that does for for a student. You know, here you walked into an environment that was almost 80, 75% people of color. Um, a lot of people are pretty much self-made, right? They didn't have very wealthy parents. They had to work their way through finance and now through investing in other companies, um, they've been successful in their careers and have also established their own, their own wealth. Um, you know, that was one, it was a big reason for me to join. Um, but not the only reason, um, they're good at what they did. They just happened to be Latino. Right. Um, and it was, it was hard because imagine like, we talk about like immigrant hustle, right? And people always going hard, waking up before sunrise, going to work, all these other things. Imagine like that mindset, but also in finance, which is already intense to begin with. It was very, very hard. Um, and, it, and it taught you discipline, um, how to be super rigorous. And I don't regret any of that, to be honest with you. Um, what made it different was that we invested in companies that either had um, a Latino founder or had services or products that focused on uh, the Spanish-speaking consumers um, or that were cross-border. And that was a huge economic opportunity then and it mm -hmm. still is today. So mm -hmm. again, it wasn't that you made investments just because you know the business is run by someone that speaks Spanish and likes the same food that you do. It was mm -hmm. a good business. And they were looking to expand and they were looking for partners to, uh, to join them in that journey. And Palladium remains one of those firms that takes founder-owned businesses and takes them to another level um, in a very, very strategic way. Did you feel that you had to be more competitive coming from JP Morgan, where you're a minority, like one of probably the smaller Latino population versus being thrown into Palladium, where it was, like you said, 70, 80% people of color. Did you, did you feel like you had to hustle harder or were you, did you feel like you had more to prove hmm. at Palladium versus JP Morgan? No, it was the same. It was the same. It was the same. Um, I think that at the end of the day, it's a job, right? And doesn't matter who you're working for. Um, you want to make sure that your work is, is good, is consistent. Um, and that it's also original, right? Because once you go from banking to private equity, you go from an intermediary to a decision maker right? Like when you're in private equity, you're, you're investing, not just the firm's capital, but pension funds um, for public school teachers and firefighters and policemen, um, other uh, university endowments, like all that money is, is the capital that comes into a big fund like that and is, is invested. And then the gains kind of go back to those same investors. So, you have to be on your game. 
and it's, it is a performance driven business, right? If, and if some of those results don't pan out, Hey, the exit's right there. <laughs> um, you know, and fortunately, you know, when I left Palladium, it was on my own terms, right? It just, mm -hmm. I was ready to move on. I've been there for four years and I felt that I had gained the experience and the skills and the, and, and frankly, the, the network that I was looking for. And that's when mm -hmm. I made the shift to what I'm doing today, which is working in the social impact space. Um, and you uh, did you directly move to San Francisco and work in that? I did. I did. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so I currently work in an organization um, called Third Sector Capital Partners. Um, it's a nonprofit consulting organization, about 50 people. Uh, and we advise governments and nonprofits on, on really what is the most effective investment of public funds in social programs. Um, so I work in the areas of homelessness, uh, recidivism and reentry. Uh, we do a lot of work in education and healthcare. Um, to answer the big questions, right? They're limited resources. So how do we allocate funding for those programs that have been most successful, right? And how do you access the data to know what's working and what's not? Um, and that was, that was actually a very big jump for me because I was finally doing the things that I cared about, going back to college, right? Like I went mm -hmm. on this finance journey to pick up a bunch of skills. All right, now put it to play. Um, yeah. And the same rigor um, and intensity that we just talked about being a place like JP Morgan at Palladium also applies to the public sector. Sadly, you just don't always see that, right? Within our government officials and all of the state, county, federal agencies. So I, one of the big things my mentors always mentioned to me is you always have to establish your own playing field, right? So in this case, if we're trying to solve, it's not solve, but we're trying to address certain social problems. How can we do that you know, with data and how can we do that in a coordinated way where you have different funding streams across different departments, you know, funding things that work. And those are the mm -hmm. questions I work on every day, um, which I love. And I've been doing now for uh, five years, almost five years now. And now do the government agencies give you the funding and then you allocate it to what you guys feel is the, the most feasible or you work in partnership with the, the government? Yeah, it's the latter. So I'll give you a good example. Um, Governments hire us uh, to, to advise their staff um, and, and how to lay out their design plans. Um, I've, for the last couple of years, I've been working with a district attorney in California, uh, thinking about how to provide coaching and a number of workforce, substance use disorder, uh, and education programs for people that have committed low-level nonviolent non felonies. So in lieu of incarceration, can we design an 18-month program that focuses on the life needs of someone that's committed a crime, but can get them actually on a pathway to self-sufficiency? So it's a big thing, right? Because we always talk about, you know, ending mass incarceration and, you know, you hear about um, ending bail. But the question is, okay, if you want to do that, what do we do now, right? Um, and that's really actually what I'm working on is, is really thinking about if you're gonna end mass incarceration, what do you do with those billions of dollars that are used to incarcerate people? Right. Yeah. Um, and, and frankly, a lot of that is, is used and continues to be used for programming at the community level. Um, I'm much more interested in understanding which of those programs are very effective in reducing recidivism. 
um, mm -hmm. are effective in ensuring someone can actually have a job. Um, and if there are barriers to obtaining those jobs, how do you use that funding to get your documents in place, uh, to clear your background? Um, and if you have any type of mental, um, mental health issues that you need to address, great. How do we get those clinicians on staff to address your needs so that you can say, hey, I am able and ready to go to work? So definitely you have to pre prepare them like to help them, you know, get back, I guess, in the, the mass population just to kind of sustain themselves. Cause it, yep. probably like a lot of, I know a lot, one issue people always bring up is like when they go to jail, they come out, they can't find a job, you know, sometimes, you know, they, they have a hard time reacclimating to, to society. So building these, these path pathways, you know, that's really, right. Is, is important and kind of because they, they are people at the end of the day so you have to treat them like that yeah and it's not it's not a handout either right it's not like saying okay great you committed a prior crime here you go here's a second chance um you know these are people that uh the justice system has determined that he, here's the the punishment um if found guilty um and the question is all right do you have someone just sit in jail or do you have someone return the community with with what? Um, and at the end of the day, this is what public taxes fund, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whether it's real estate or consumption taxes, um, it's, it's publicly funded programs. And the question is, are we using that money uh, for tax breaks? Are we using that money um, to build parks? Um, or are we building uh, the appropriate social services to support everyone you know, that, that requires access to those. And I think there's a fair balance across those three broad buckets. And, and for us, you know, it's, it's sometimes very sad to see that the same type of scrutiny that's applied for a like election isn't also applied to how we spend $200 million in homeless services, right? It's just kind of assumed mm -hmm. that $200 million is gonna go out the door and, you know, let's hope that it works. Um, but I think there are better ways to go about that. If you can understand, like, what are some intermittent performance indicators that you can look at to see whether or not that funding for that housing program is actually working. Um, there are ways to fund evaluation and frankly, there are ways to fund services in a very flexible way where you can let the professionals do the work and not have government regulations stating, Hey, you need to do this program according to this protocol. And not, not even that, and also like maybe something that worked 10, 15 years ago that worked, today it might not be the same system. So like, it's not, you know, oh, we've been funding this organization for the last 20 years. Yeah, but 20 years ago it worked. That's right. Today's times, it's a whole nother story. So That's right. It's very important to bring consultants in like, like yourself to, to really evaluate and see if it, the, the public funds are, are being used. That's right. Yeah, and, and it's one of those things, right, where um, – in by no by no way, shape, or form, you know, should we be taking down the public safety net mm -hmm. by saying a program doesn't work, therefore cut the funding? Mm -hmm. um, the question is the same one you would ask, uh, you know, if you have an investment advisor, right? Like, hey, is this the best use of of our resources? Um, and and. And frankly, it's, it's particularly in the areas of workforce development, um, recidivism, and mental health. When you think about like the high cost of, of emergency room visits and inpatient psychiatric stays, 
um, you know, these are big questions for the public sector that, uh, that we're tackling. And to be honest, I love, love putting everything I learned in, in middle school, high school, in terms of working with people and understanding the needs of communities. Um, in college, just in terms of the political history and the dynamics that you need to be aware of in large cities um, and also in rural communities. And then in finance, right? All of those quantitative, analytical, uh, decision-making skills, putting it to work. Definitely. No, it's, it's a good, you have like a trifecta. Of <laughs> I, don't know if it's, I don't know if it's a trifecta, but we're getting there, man. We're getting there. Just piecing it together and hustling your way through. Okay. And then, so like you're doing all this good from your nine to five job or your day job, but you are also the, the color commentator. Is that the proper term? Yeah. For, for Los Jetson Espanol. Like how did <laughs> like finance, urban plan, you know, urban development, all that mix into being, uh, the, the voice uh, of Los Jets. Yeah. Um, uh, no, no, it's a good thing. Good thing to end on. Um, super random to be honest with you, as is, as is probably a lot of things in life. Um, I, I played football in high school, was captain of our, of our team, and um, recognized that if I were to play in college, it'd be a huge sacrifice, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I ultimately decided not to play. But, like, I know the game inside and out. And when I moved to New York, I, I ran into um, – a, an alumnus from Penn, actually, talk about the Penn, uh, Ivy League network. Um, I ran into someone who worked for the Jets, and he's actually mm -hmm. my day-to-day -day, uh, broadcast partner now. Mm -hmm. But um, he he let me know at the time that uh, you know the Jets had just drafted Mark Sanchez. This is back in two thousand and two thousand and eight, if I remember correctly, two thousand eight draft. Before the butt fumble. Before the that. butt fumble, we broadcasted <laughs> the butt fumble. That was something. Uh, uh, and he said, look, you know, the Jets just drafted Mark Sanchez. He's a kid from LA. What do you know about him? Mm -hmm. And I said, it's actually really interesting because I had worked out with Mark Sanchez in LA. Oh, uh, yeah. We, we were part of a couple of football camps down at USC for coach Pete Carroll when he was down at SC oh, wow. and we scrimmaged against uh, mission Viejo high school, which is where Mark Sanchez went to high school. Uh, a couple of times and said, look, he's a good quarterback. Um, you know, he only, he, he doesn't have a, he didn't, he doesn't have a lot of experience at USC. Um, he left after really only playing about a year and was jumping into the NFL. But I said, look, he's a smart guy, um, good family, hardworking. And, uh, you know, I think, I think it's a, it's a solid pick is what I told him. I said, it's a solid pick. That led to a conversation for about like three to six months where it was just back and forth. Hey, what about this? And what about this? And what about that? And uh, ultimately in 2009, I get a phone call from the same guy. His name is Clemson. And he said that um, his partner was actually leaving the broadcast booth and he was looking for someone who, could, who knows the game inside and out, can communicate reasonably well, but has to do it in Spanish. And I was like, why is that a but statement, right? It should be an and statement. And um, he decided to give me a chance. I let mm -hmm. him know that as a child, I always wanted to be a broadcaster. Mm -hmm. uh, growing up, I didn't have cable. So 
all the sports I would watch, basketball, football, baseball, hockey, I would always listen to it on radio because we didn't have cable. You can only watch the road games actually on, on, mm-hmm. on the, uh, through the antenna, right? Back in the day. <laughs> and um, I always wanted to be a, a journalist or a broadcaster. But once like your social consciousness hits in like high school, you're like, okay, these dreams are not real. Come on, like go be a lawyer, <laughs> go, go to college, go do this, go do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but this was an opportunity to actually do that. And uh, I've been doing it now for 10 years. Uh, Complete coincidence uh, about a football conversation that has now, it's really, I love doing it, man. It's like, imagine being on the couch and someone gives you a microphone and you're just talking about Mm -hmm. a game. Yeah, it happens in the bars every Sunday. Exactly. Sadly, you know, for the Jets, it hasn't been a, a great last 10 years. <laughs> I'm a Dolphins fan, so I've been right there with you in the same division. <laughs> we've, we've both had our ups and downs. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it, it has been, uh, and it's been tough because, you know, for six years I was living in New York. So it was, it was mm-hmm. a local commute. Uh, it was good. You know, you, you went to all the games. It was awesome. Uh, but now that I live in San Francisco, I got to make that cross-country flight. Um, and it, it does take a toll, but it's before the Rams moved to LA, New York was the largest Spanish speaking market for the NFL. Um, number two, you know, we had something, we, we have something special going there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you have a broadcaster and my partner, Clemson Smith Muniz, who has been doing this for 20 plus years. Uh, he's like my mom's age. but he was also willing to try something different and skew younger. Right. And how do we actually make this a modern broadcast instead of your traditional blah, 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 for better or for worse, but authenticity is what is what you want in a broadcast. You don't want this whole scripted narrative. Um, you know that just comes with preparation. So it, it's it's a great outlet, man. Uh, I love it. Just did a game last night. Uh, we're back in the season, and it's mm-hmm. it, it just it just keeps me like super uh, adrenaline driven from like September to December. Uh, <laughs> Well, maybe one day, January and February, right? One day. One day. One day. One day. <laughs> okay, so let, let's um let's close this up with like some lightning round questions. Are pretty um let's do brief. It. But so you you're managing these two jobs. You're cr- making these cross country trips to do the Jets broadcast. What do you do to keep up your energy and like keep alive? Because most people need that weekend to kind of just like okay decompress and, and get ready for the next week. And you're flying back and forth between San Francisco and New York. Um, my partner is a great person. Uh, <laughs> got married two years ago. And I would say that those two hours after we come from work and, you know, go to sleep, that's, that's a big part of my day. Uh, because that is when we laugh at all the dumb stuff that happened at work. Um, when you pull up the stupid dog videos, you know, on, you know, you see on the internet, you start giggling at it. 
and, and also is a time to actually talk about real stuff, right? San Francisco, you have an affordability crisis uh, in terms of housing uh, and, and homelessness. Um, and you start wondering, hey, you know, like I saw this on the street today. Um, or, hey, I read this in the newspaper. Like, you know, what do you think about that? So having that dialogue in a very casual, fun place is awesome. And it's not just, you know, a conversation, but that's what you want in life. And it's why, you know, she's like my life partner. So doing that super early in the morning when I wake up and having that like very brief interaction and then those two, three hours after we come from home from work keeps it real. Otherwise I'm like heads down at work or I'm yeah. in the stat book uh, or reviewing film. Oh, gotcha. So, so you, 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 you cherish those, the, the, that free time you do have and to really. Yeah. Cause then you ask yourself, why are you doing this? Right. Mm -hmm. And, and one of the things I learned about being married is that before as a kid, you were doing all the hard work because your mom told you to do it. Mm -hmm. And then you go to college and you're like, oh, all right, I got to do it for myself and my family. And then once you're already in the workforce, you're like, all right, I got to get paid. <laughs> I got to promote it. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm 31 now. So now you're like, why are you doing this? And you're still driven, right? And you, you've learned all these, all these things. But at the end of the day, like you do this for your family. And your family is not just you and, and the, you know, your aunts and your uncles and your mom, but is now uh, your partner and then her family. And then hopefully at some point in the future, your kids. So, so for me, it's just, it's just part of the natural evolution that you got to roll with. Gotcha. And then for the last question, what's one thing that you've had probably since third grade or childhood that, that like one core value mantra things thing that that keeps you you going and motivated that common trend from from that time all the way through present day i think it makes me think about this quote uh from like high school where it was uh think with your heart but protect it with your mind mm -hmm. and so for me it's that um I grew up with a very compassionate parent. Um, she worked really hard, um, <clears throat> but she also recognized that like, you're not special because you work hard um, and you're not the only person in that situation. And although someone may say, hey, your, mark, your mom worked really hard to give you the best opportunities. It wasn't fully altruistic all the time too, right? Like she also needed to find her way in this new world, you know, coming from El Salvador, leaving civil war and literally showing up with like a backpack um, because she needed to develop her own self worth and have her own North star. And I think the same thing applies with what I'm doing today, right? I'm doing a lot of work in the public sector because I care about it. I, I really like it. It riles me up. Uh, when we, when you see uh, a number of socioeconomic and racial disparities that frankly just don't feel right. Right. So I feel very strongly about that. I, I have the emotion there, but at the same time, like we've been gifted an incredible opportunity through education and all of our experiences that you want to put to work. And that's where I feel like the mind part plays a very critical component in balancing out, you know, your, your raw emotions. So so for me, it's like you work hard, but you got to make sure there's a 
there's a fine balance between compassion and humanity, you know, with, with reason and strategic thought. Uh, and I, and I, I, I generally apply that, you know, in my day to day, but also with my friends, you know, so whether you're there shooting the shit, talking about dumb stuff, but it's like very real because you're talking about racial identity. Mm-hmm. Um, that's part of the fun back and forth that I think, you know, makes us human. And, and at the end of the day, you know, establishes really strong bonds with people, whether you've known them for years or you just meet them, you know, on a, uh, on a call like this, man, where we're hanging out, just talking about what we've been through and, and we'll continue to go through. Definitely. Well, thank you so much, Oscar. Thank you for the, for your time. And I'm, I'm glad to have you on and I'm sure I, I, you have a lot to share and hopefully it motivates people out there, but as, as well as just kind of learn the learn both of our stories. Yeah, no. And I appreciate you having the platform to, to get that out there because it's um, my story isn't unique. All of us have gone through this. So get, getting that out there and, and having that foresight uh, to think about what are interesting things to put out, uh, out on the table uh, is not mm-hmm. easy. So really, really appreciate you taking the time um, and, and really having the, the spirit, right, to, to drive this forward. So thank you, Ozzy. All right, thank you. Next time you're in New York, then you have a few hours, maybe we can grab a beer. Let's do that. Let's do that. Take care, Oscar. To you. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you did, hit subscribe. And of course, follow us on IG, Facebook, and all their social media platforms at Platform Latino. That's P-L-A-T-F-O-R-M-L-A-T-I-N-O. Thanks again and have a wonderful and inspired day. Mm-hmm.